the air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wadharong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that will earn that honour in the future. We are broadcasting from land that was stolen by the first white colonisers. It was never ceded. We also have the strong belief that we will never have climate justice until we have justice for our First Nations brothers and sisters. We know that we have so much to learn from the ancient wisdom that's allowed them to thrive, often in harsh conditions, by the way they nurtured the land for millennia before it was stolen from them. I feel strong and determined because for the first time ever, I feel that um, the people in Parliament House are having to have serious conversations about climate policy because if they don't, there's somebody out the front of Parliament House who could be dead. Said climate hunger striking Gregory Andrews as he's been sitting and lying in front of Parliament in Canberra for over two weeks on hunger strike. However, last Friday it got to that point where the paramedics said you need to go to hospital and they, uh, there was an ambulance and off to hospital he went and then you would think okay so that was the end of that hunger strike but this is not just one man's crazy issue and it's great to see that others stepped in right away so over the weekend the deputy mayor of Sjölhaven has taken over the mission you could say of sitting in front of parliament on hunger strike and on monday another one took over after him so that story has not come to an end it continues and we'll be following it with great interest here in the sustainable hour and acknowledging that gregory andrews with his hunger strike actually managed to get it on the abc as he said this is like covid was it's an emergency it's a climate emergency And we need our leaders to act like it's an emergency. This echoes what Greta Thunberg was telling us five years ago. The climate crisis has never been treated as a crisis. And so I think that should be a start, that we should treat it as a crisis. Because then it would come naturally that we try to solve it. We need our leaders to talk about that we are in a climate emergency, declare a climate emergency even, and then act as if it is an emergency, which it is. As we saw in the weekend, suddenly climate got real for a lot of music fans, Taylor Swift fans in Rio de Janeiro, where one of her fans dies in the heat and Taylor Swift postpones the concert. There were 60,000 people who were gathering to hear Taylor Swift a sellout concert at an open-air stadium and people were suffering in the heat as they were waiting in the lines to access this show and just a couple of hours before Taylor Swift was about to go on stage she announced on her Instagram that she's made the decision to postpone tonight's show because of these extreme temperatures that Rio was experiencing on Saturday because 
Brazil has been going through a record-breaking heat wave with temperatures up around the 40 degrees. And if you look at the heat index, because of the humidity, when you combine temperature and humidity, there's a heat index that says that on Saturday, the heat index peaked at 59.7 degrees Celsius. In other words, it felt like it was 59 degrees. And that's where the climate chit-chatting suddenly gets really deadly. Because you just have to pass 52 degrees on the heat index, and then you are in the danger zone. And at 59, that's where it gets unlivable. That's where the body, the core temperature in the body goes above 40 degrees, and it becomes a medical emergency, and your organs begin to, to fail. And as we saw, people fall ill, and then they die. A state of emergency has been declared in New Zealand after Cyclone Gabrielle brought... You will face the collapse of everything that gives us our security. Twiggy, Dr. Andrew Forrest, has been on this tour at different universities around the world where he's been explaining exactly that. He talks about lethal humidity. Lethal humidity is what is so dangerous. One of the leaders of the Royal Society back in the 17th century put himself in a room for half an hour at 120 degrees Celsius for 30 minutes. The air was bone dry. He survived, he walked out. So did his dog. You add a puff of humidity into that and the dog and the human would have died very quickly. You don't need to be protected from heat. You're gonna be fine. You are thermoregulated organisms and you will be okay in global warming provided there's no humidity. But the bad news, which you never get told, is that it's humidity which removes your power to thermoregulate. 30, 35 degrees, or the scholars here in Oxford argue even less, will kill you at high humidity. I wonder whether Taylor Swift made that connection with and for her fans. That the reason we are seeing this heat, folks, oh, it's, it's a heat wave, and for some strange reason, these heat waves just seem to keep breaking records. No, it's because of fossil fuels. Did you tell that? Taylor Swift, to your 60,000 fans, that the reason people are dying is because of our burning of coal, oil, gas and petrol. The last line in an article that was published by Reuters said, intense heat waves attributed to global temperature rises have gripped multiple Brazilian states with temperatures surpassing historical averages since July, according to the National Institute of Meteorology. But there's one more line missing here. We need to add every time that there's a reason that the planet is heating up. And that reason is, it's because of our unregulated use of coal, oil, gas and petrol. And we desperately need regulations in place so that we as a society will stop adding more fuel to the fire. We must end fossil fuel pollution and accelerate the renewable energy transition before we incinerate our only home. Time is running out. Colin Market, OAM. Uh, I sort of began talking about what's been going on around the world already, but, but I'm looking forward to hear what else you have found, what's been going on around the planet. What does the global outlook look like? Yes, thank you, Mick. First of all, I have to say that it's a well-trodden path that Gregory Andrews is on. It started with the suffragettes, 
going through the uh, the maize prisoners in the Irish Troubles. And it is a, a system that has in the past cost lives, but has been effective. And it's a very, very brave person who takes that path. So the World Roundup this week uh, begins in Nairobi, where delegates from more than 175 countries are gathered for the third round of talks to create an international plastics treaty, which would restrict the manufacture and disposal of plastics worldwide. The current talks focus on the proposed treaty's scope and ambition. They're led by the EU, where nations are pushing for binding provisions to restrain and reduce the consumption and production of all plastics. The US has called for provisions to reduce plastic pollution, while embracing industries call for advanced plastic recycling. The Nairobi talks have the aim of finding a diplomatic solution to a global plastic pollution crisis amid a growing awareness of the effects of plastic on the environment and human health. Millions of tons of discarded plastic waste have become a pervasive menace, choking streams, lakes and oceans worldwide, killing wildlife and in tiny particles called nanoplastics, finding its way into the blood and placental fluids of life all over the planet. The United Nations Environmental Assembly began this cycle of meetings in March 2022, and one potential outcome of the Nairobi meeting could be an agreement to write a formal first draft of a plastic treaty to be discussed at the fourth negotiation session for April in Ottawa, Canada. If you like, it's a plastic version of COP. It's a series of talks which appears to be going nowhere, but it does have a good thing happening at the bottom of it. And an idea of the opposition that confronts this plastic impetus came last week from Kingwood community in Houston, Texas. Now there they've been working for two years on a total plastic recycling scheme in conjunction with big oil companies. It's Houston, Texas, after all. The project involved recognizing all the different plastics and putting them into different recycling bins. The bins bear the names of the Houston Recycling Collaboration, ExxonMobil, and three other big oil companies. The Houston community has for the past two years separated their styrofoam from their plastic bottles, their plastic wrap and their bubble wrap and transported them to one of two all plastic depositories. The goal is to boost the dismal plastic recycling rates in Houston, which are thought to be even lower than the US national average of 6%. The aim was and still is to turn Houston, which is a petrochemical and plastics manufacturing hub, into a model of responsibility for other cities that are struggling with plastic waste. But the effort is quite opaque, to say the least, because the city and its partners have shrouded their collaboration with secrecy. But last week, electronic tracking by an environmental group has found that the plastic waste isn't getting repurposed at all. It's just getting stockpiled. Does this sound familiar? It's what's happened here for decades, never mind two years. 
The different plastics were supposed to be going to a brand new chemical recycling operation that opened last year by ExxonMobil, which is yet to produce anything at all. There seems to be no end to the length that fossil fuel companies will go to greenwash their products. Now to London, where a new report released this week raised new questions about how much more the Earth may warm or cool if and when we're able to reduce carbon dioxide emissions to zero. The report's best estimates suggest that the global surface temperature would stabilise within a few decades. But the new paper in the journal Frontiers in Science examines the uncertainties around this conclusion, including how the planet's key carbon dioxide absorbing systems, like forests and oceans, are likely to respond. For example, an August 2023 study showed a declining decadal trend in the amount of carbon dioxide the oceans absorb, and other recent research suggests multiple forest ecosystems, including the all-important Amazon basin, are starting to emit more carbon than they're taking up. The researchers found there is a one in six chance that Earth's surface temperature could continue to rise with a clear risk of several tenths of a degree of additional warming after net zero CO2, according to the report's co-author, Joel Rogel, a climate scientist at Imperial College London. There is a non-negotiable chance that global warming will continue after net zero and intensify dangerous climate change, he said. Worldwide emissions reduction plans overlook this important risk, which should be urgently addressed at COP28, that's later this month. Now for some good and bad news to finish with. The bad first. A tweet from Professor Elliot Jacobson said that for the first time ever on November the 18th of this year, the world temperature breached the target temperature of two degrees Celsius. That's above the IPCC baseline of pre-industrial levels. It was just one day, the professor wrote, and the long-term average remains at 1.5 degrees Celsius, but not probably for long, because we've actually hit it for one day. And that was slightly balanced by a report that Australia's renewable energy hit a record high of 72.9% for a five-minute period last week. It beat the previous record of 72.5% set last month. The bulk of the power generation came from rooftop solar, that's 44%, followed by uh, utility solar at 14%, that's solar farms, and wind generation at 12%, with hydro only 1.1%. But given the warning from the previous snippet, I can't help thinking that what we've got is again too little and too late. And that mixed news finishes my report for the week. Mick. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. It's like our community is split in that there's one part of the community which is really understanding what's going on. They don't get it from the mainstream media because they're pretty much silent about it. 
and they are in a, you could say they are in despair. They really feel that this is a desperate situation. This is not just, you know, an emergency in the future sometime when we're all gone. No, this is happening now, and we are very much part of it. And and part of why it's so desperate is because so many other people out there, that's the other part of society, still don't even have a clue what's going on. They don't have an idea about how desperate our situation is. And that is a desperate situation. So it's good we have the Sustainable Hour, I think, because the Sustainable Hour is the place where we talk about solutions and where we talk with people who have been working in the solution field for a long time and have answers for us in terms of how we speed up and what we need to do and so on. Our guest today, our special guest in the Sustainable Hour, in the light of everything that you have been saying, Colin, is Chloe Davison, who is someone who has been helping a big company, a toy company, called Moose Toys with, you could say, that journey of going green or becoming a more sustainable company. You also have your own consultancy company. Is that right? Glaze Donuts. Is that the name? <laughs> I wish it was called Glaze Donuts. I think that would be a much funner name. Um, uh, it definitely has, uh, it's called Glaze Sustainability. So it's a nod to donut economics because um, we find a lot of decarbonization plans really have those carbon tunnel vision um, uh, goggles on. And so we wanted to make sure that when we're making decarbonization plans for the corporate sector, that you're considering other things such as social factors, um, biodiversity, and not just purely going after carbon reduction. But the word glaze is interesting because it seems to me that there's a lot of sugar glazing in <laughs> In the, in the industry, isn't there? Also, when consultants come in and say, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, but it's really about what we tell the consumers out there who are buying our products. It's not so much about what we actually do. So there's all that sugar yeah. glazing. Yeah, but, sugar but, glazing. But, Maybe that's how we should uh, label greenwashing from now on, sugar glazing. Yeah. And there's also an internal sugar glazing, which is that, oh, we don't want to disturb our employees and make them get too into despair. Which, I mean, a lot of what Colin just talked about there can get you, if you really understand what's happening here, it's pretty desperate stuff. And, yeah. and do you really want your employees to get this uh, message? How do you deal with that, Chloe? Yeah, well, I'd probably look at it from two ways. One, um, so I also facilitate something called Climate Fresk. Um, it used to be called Climate Collage, and it's a it's a like a game, it's a three hour workshop game. It was made out of France, and it really brings down those thousands of IPCC pages into a few cards, and it's a really great way to educate people on the causes and consequences of climate change and how everything in the system is all interconnected, um, and. We do something after doing about an hour and a half of those cards where we talk about the emotional side. Um, and it's, we run it with two different types of groups. So we run it in communities where we're purely volunteering our time. And we also run it in corporates where we are paid to run those workshops. And it's really interesting the difference in vulnerability um, of people expressing those emotions in a community setting, um, you know, at a school where it's just people in the neighborhood doing it versus in a corporate setting. You know, we've had people in community settings, you'll find people, you know, brought to tears explaining their distress over having just focused an hour and a half on that that doom and gloom. 
and where we could potentially end up if we don't do anything. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you've got the corporate side where, you know, we've had people admit that they don't feel anything. Um, so the corporate environment isn't really set up for one to be a, mo- a safe place for emotions, regardless of what we're talking about, right? Whether that is that somebody's passed away um, and you're, you're a human and you're reacting to that or whether it's talking about climate change. So one, I find it really hard to tap into that emotional side in the corporate sector. So, and then the other side of like that greenwashing um, is we usually talk about greenwashing of customers and our, and our laws and regulations are really set up around greenwashing of customers. So we've got ACCC here in Australia. Um, and then uh, you've also got ASIC regulating the financial sector, but then you also have greenwashing of employees and there isn't really any regulations around that um, and that corporations can be putting forward these targets um, or, you know, saying they're doing something but it's not doing enough and that they're actually greenwashing their employees and then employees actually stay longer than they would have otherwise because they actually think the company's doing the right thing. Whether it's a forest or a forest floor, or whether it's a family, or whether it's, you know, uh, Fridays for the Future, or whether it is a gaggle of geese, or a pod of dolphins, or a locker room of the Detroit Lions. I mean, we are all the same. Communities and people and soil and life are these patchwork of living entities teeming networks of exquisitely interconnected organisms to which we owe our existence. Now, regeneration is not a panacea. It's not a certification. It's not a standard. It is a pathway. It is a purpose. It is a direction. It means putting life at the center of every act and decision, every policy and process. Regeneration restores and forests, but also favelas, coral reefs, and communities. Ponds, beaver ponds, hopefully, and the built environment. And it elicits and engenders localization as contrasted to globalization. Ten thousands of NGOs, of communities, of students, of activists, of foundations and companies are forging a regenerative future as we speak. And they are addressing everything that we use, eat, buy, make, wear, and build. And thousands of indigenous communities and first peoples who have been treated like the enemy for centuries, subjected to untold barbarity and cruelty, and from who, who, who we have removed uh, from the land that was theirs 
where in some cases they had lived continuously for over 40,000 years. And they are re-emerging and taking their rightful place as the progenitors of regenerative wisdom. And it's incumbent upon us to listen to these teachings and these understandings. A little excerpt here from Paul Hawkins' 12-minute TED Talk, which you can find on YouTube. It's called Regeneration Can Restore a Broken World. So, Chloe, take us through the journey. You're a consultant. You go out to big companies and then you give them advice. So, take us through the journey of which kind of advice you would give to, let's say, the next big company that you're approaching. Does it start at the top? Is it first to have the management on board and then it sort of trickles down to the employees? Or do you right away get involved with the employees? You know, take us through the journey. So absolutely, it has to come from the top. There's really no other way um, in terms of when you're rolling out really hard to reach targets, which are the targets that are necessary. Usually, it's it's funny because obviously we've somehow got ourselves into that company well we've been brought in right so there's a journey that that company's taken prior to us being there um and and that was the case for for moose so um, when i joined i joined as a consultant not as in-house i later became in-house and there was somebody who was still relatively senior, but they weren't in the C-suite. Um, and there were a few other people, more junior, that had been championed with, along with them. Um, and, you know, although I probably get a lot of the credit um, for because I took that passion and turned it into something and then we have goals and, and strategies and roadmaps, um, but you know, they really did the hard yards of it starting below, um, they starting that conversation. Um, and of course, it depends on the organization, right? So, um, Moose is a very non-hierarchical company versus, you know, I've also worked at Deloitte where that's a very hierarchical company and somebody down in the depths of the juniors would have very little power to influence what happens at the top. So, You'll see it where sometimes it's C-suite members calling for the change, it's the boards calling for the change, but then in those small, slightly smaller, non-hierarchical organizations, you can also see change coming from the bottom and then those more junior people really pushing for somebody like myself to come in and formalize their efforts. Molly, can I ask you how long you were with Moose Toys? what Moose Toys products were and how did you change it? Yes. So I started with Moose around two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, a year as a consultant and then a year in-house. Um, so the toy industry works on long lead times, so you won't find any products um, on the shelf that have had significant changes because they usually work, they're usually designing toys now for you know a few seasons um, in the future 
They're designed here and made in China. Have I got that right? And that's why you've got a long lead-in time. Yes. So there's definitely factories that are in China and then um, in other in other areas of Asia as well. And you're so, usually so- having to go that far ahead because you're having to get those design past licensing partners, past retailers, and of course, testing and quality assurance of those toys, which is top priority for a toy company, considering they have that intersection with children. What in particular were you changing? What's the difference now to what it was two years ago before you started there? Yeah, so what we did was we created um, the environmental sustainability strategy that we put together was uh, five different pillars. So the first two pillars were packaging and product, um, and that was grouped into a company project called Project Circularity, and that is about uh, designing the packaging and product for circularity, which is a huge component. And I had my partner in anti-green crime, Greg Simmons. So he's the director of sustainable product design. And he really heads up um, as an engineer, that portion of designing packaging and products for circularity. So that's like um, designing for repair, um, designing for durability, design, choosing materials, um, uh, And then another component of that project circularity is questioning business models, uh, as well as looking at product stewardship. Because even if they were to explore other business models like rental and resale, um, that ultimately as the toy is going to end up in landfill at some point in time and that there needs to be a product stewardship system there to take those, those toys away and deal with them responsibly. Uh, and then we have the other three pillars are waste, emissions, and water. So um, emissions is their goal is looking at net zero emissions across scope one, two, and three and setting science-based uh, targets. So the science-based targets have not been set yet, but the CEO did sign a uh, the science-based targets initiative letter earlier in February to say that within 24 months they would set those targets, um, which is really the gold standard in the corporate sector for emissions targets. So that really means like I would be working across the whole supply chain. So with um, factories, warehouses, freight borders, questioning, you know, how we making goods what materials are we choosing from an emissions perspective? Um, are factories decarbonizing? How are we moving those goods around the world? Are we air freighting them? Are we moving them by sea? And even when we're moving them by sea, even though that's so much better than moving them by air, that we still need to get to a zero emission solution in the future and then a reduced emission solution now. And then that's really the emissions piece. And then the waste, uh, the, um, they have uh, waste reduction targets across um, multiple different areas of their supply chain. And then water was a, an area to be explored in the future. And uh, I guess my, my personal opinion on, on water would be that it's an incredibly under-discussed topic uh, when, you know, if we're talking about the potential dire consequences of climate that, uh, you know, that water is, if not more dire consequence, particularly for our species, and and that those changes are more imminent potentially. Mm. Hey, Chloe, can I take you back to your packaging where you started 
How will the packaging change when it finally gets through the processing stage? Let's say this time next year, how will the packaging be different to the way that the same toy would be coming through this year? Are you cutting out plastics? Are you replacing plastics with something that is more climate friendly? So uh, there is definitely a aim to reduce plastics um, as well as designing for circularity. So when plastics are there, choosing plastics that are easily recyclable, um, you know, steering away from, you know, items that aren't recyclable like soft plastics or they're not readily recyclable, they're not easily accessibly recyclable. Um, also making sure that something we call easy separation. So uh, let's just take a bread bag with a window as an example. I know that is not in the toy industry, but it's a it would be an example that everyone's familiar with, right? You've gone to the bakery, you've got a bag of bread, it's a paper bag, but it has a window on it so you can see through. So most consumers are not going to go to the effort. I mean, I do, but I'm probably one of the rare people is, is tearing off that window to put that soft plastics in the landfill bin and then put the paper in the recycling. So that would be considered a, a design where it is not easy separation um, or, or readily separated. So trying to design toys where, where plastic is there, that it's a easily recyclable material that has a much higher value when it is recycled and also that a consumer doesn't need to worry about separating those two items. I'm curious, Chloe, to hear about your own journey. What got you so deeply interested in this that you're now advising others? How, how did you get to the level of knowledge that you have now? Yeah, I, I mean, it's always a learning journey. I was, I was saying earlier that I am a serial consumer of, of podcasts. I think it's a really great way to keep up because there's so much knowledge. Um, so probably like one of the largest catalysts of my interest in this space was actually my uh, year in in France studying. Um, just the the program they had there was sustainability was weaved into it. Um, we had opportunities to go to conferences that were in the space, and just people were really passionate about the topic. Um, and then I think I probably let that uh, passion subside for a while. Uh, and then I went and continued my my journey at Deloitte in the strategy and operations team, working with, you know, like big mining companies, oil and gas giants. You know, I tried to, to pitch some ideas of how we could, because we were a supply chain team. So um, that there was potential work coming down the pipeline, you know, China and other Asian partners really just cut off the ability for us to export waste. Um, and, and at that point in time, I was probably most interested in the waste and circularity space. And then after after leaving uh, Deloitte, um, I was headed over to, to London and had like signed the dream job that was, um, there's a company called Loop who are doing amazing things in that circularity space where they're really trying to elevate, go beyond recycling for packaging. So they've partnered with the likes of Wal retailers like Walgreens and Carefor in France and I think Tesco in the UK. 
Um, and then also brands of food and beverage. So Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and their associated brands um, to make reusable packaging. So a good example is you could take a hug and dust, go to Tesco, go and get off the shelf a hug and dust ice cream in a stainless steel container. Then you would eat that ice cream and you could return that package to store. It wouldn't be recycled. It would actually be cleaned, refilled with hug and dust ice cream and be put back on the shelf. Because ultimately we can't recycle our way out of the problem and, and we need to be moving further up that waste hierarchy. So I have signed with them. Um, I signed on the dotted line on the 28th of, of February, 2020, if you can do the quick math, but um, that ultimately did not go ahead. Uh, I had my suitcases ready, my visa ready, um, and, and the Australian borders shut. So um, I really was, you know, I was unemployed at the time. I thought, well, I'm going a little stir crazy here in terms of not being able to put my mind to something. Um, so I ultimately ended up signing up for the Masters um, of Climate Change Policy at ANU which I could not recommend enough. Um, I have enjoyed, I'm still, I was working on it full-time during COVID, but since moving back into full-time work, I put that on the back burner. But I've I've loved every minute of it. You know, it's not just the professors that are top-notch. So, you know, you've got IPCC scientists. Um, you know, Will Steffen was one of my lecturers. Unfortunately, he passed away earlier this year, um, but you really couldn't get a better environmental scientists than that. You had IPCC economists and and it's not just the professors, it's also the students, right, in your master's. It's them bringing their knowledge to the table and a dynamic conversation. And in the corporate sector, particularly when you're consulting, you're expected to be the expert and it's just a lovely environment where you can step back and be the student rather than the teacher um, and ask all the questions uh, and I, I kind of left consulting feeling like, uh, I, I mean, um, the big four consulting, thinking, well, nobody knows anything. You know, we're all uh, making it up as we go. But then, so I left a little bit thinking nobody knows anything, but then went to academia and realized, oh, no, no, people know things. Unfortunately, they're just not listened to as much as they should be. That's kind of like the very concrete journey of how I got into the climate space. But it's, it's interesting looking further back. So, you know, the impact of schools running programs or universities doing things in their, in their programs. Because if I was to look back, like in my high school of chemistry classes, you know, I was writing papers on recycled water, on photovoltaic cells. At the time, I did not have a passion for it, but I think it's definitely breadcrumbs along the way. And, and university competitions, uh, actually the part, my partner at Glaze, we met doing a competition at university, uh, where we again weren't passionate about circularity or in that, the environment, but we just chose this topic. And it's really funny because there was six people in that team and none of us were again passionate about the topic. It was just something we chose. And today, you know, almost a decade on, four out of six of us work full time in the space. Have you got one project that you see as being the victory, if you like, the one big thing that you have done to turn 
a company or a product around mm -hmm. to make it more environmentally friendly? So I think like most things in the climate space, you know, there's no silver bullet and everything, whether that's changing company values, whether that's changing rewards and recognition structures, um, whether that's just educating the C-suite um, or raising the right questions, you know. Um, uh, but probably the thing I'm most proud of maybe speaks to like my Deloitte days in operations uh, and you wouldn't expect this out of a toy company, but it would actually be our work in zero emission shipping. So uh, as I said earlier, you really want to be avoiding air freight at all costs because it can be, you know, um, emitting 60 times more emissions than shipping something via, via sea. But ultimately, nobody gets a free pass. No industry gets a free pass in these scenarios. So um, you can readily today buy biofuel credits um, for, for maritime. However, those are only going to get you to 80% reduction in the best case scenario. And also they're relying on waste feedstocks where other industries are competing for those, um, such as aviation, rail, um, and there are cases to be made that they probably should be prioritised over the shipping industry because of the other options that the shipping industry has on the table to decarbonize. But what we worked on was through an organization called the Aspen Institute in the States. And they have an initiative, two initiatives called Cargo Owners for Zero Emission Vessels. So first and foremost, we signed their, um, uh, became a signatory of their, their pledge that was saying that by 2040, we were wanting, uh, Moose was wanting 100% of cargo to be shipped via zero emissions vessels. Now that's 10 years prior to the IMO, the International Maritime Organization's targets of 2050. So it was really trying to one, shift that timeline forward in line with science, but also sending a very clear message to the industry that there was demand from their customers for these solutions, because prior to that, the narrative had been that, well, our customers don't seem to be wanting it, these solutions. So why would we invest significantly in this area? So that was two things, change the narrative around demand from cargo owners and shift that timeline forward for decarbonization in the industry. So that was just a signatory letter. Then the second thing that followed on from that was an initiative called Zemba. So I'm probably going to mark up the explanation of the acronym, but Zero Emissions Maritime Buyers Alliance. I got it. Um, and that is a tender that they were putting out to market. So they got really all those signatories who had signed the COSEF statement um, and more. So the likes of Patagonia, Ikea, Amazon, uh, and they said, okay, well, for a um, tender in the future around 2025, what will you pledge through this agreement to buy from the shipping companies for zero emission inset credits. Um, and so they were aggregating that demand, which means one, you're going to get a better price, but two, you know, these projects need to be operating at a large scale. They can't be just getting drifts and drabs here. So that tender is still out at market at the moment um, with shipping companies responding 
to that um, and we'll see, you know, early next year the results of that tender. But the purpose of that tender in summary is, one, it's putting your money where your mouth is, right? You you know, you can say that you want 100% zero emissions um, uh, shipping, but unless you're actually going to purchase these inset credits. Um, so it's really trying to bring forward the deployment of zero emission fuels in the market. And you also need sometimes different ships to ship those around. And these industries, just like the aviation industry, they have much larger, larger lead times than a toy company. Um, so you need to be getting these, to, if we're to be decarbonizing by 2040, the demand needs to be here today. Can I uh, just very quickly come in to the shipping decarbonization? Uh, we've had in the past, over the past uh, several years, plans that uh, shipping companies could use sales or biofuels or battery um, replacements for electric, uh, electric power for them. We actually haven't seen any evidence of any of these actually happening. Have you, from your much closer scrutiny, are, are there any zero emissions shipping lines at all globally at the moment? So obviously shipping is uh, very vast. Um, the shipping, I guess, that I'm talking about are the much larger cargo boats. Uh, you'll definitely see some really innovative stuff at these um, in the smaller boats, like in aviation, right? We're seeing some really interesting innovation for decarbonization of small flights and small planes. It's it's and that change is happening at the fringes, um, and it would be the same with the the shipping or I guess the maritime industry. Um, and I would definitely say that Maersk is doing uh, is really leading the way in deploying zero, you know, changing their fleets so that they can be taking on certain zero emission um, fuels. Um, Maersk has some already some partnerships of rolling out those zero emission fuels. Right now, they're not necessarily zero emissions, but they're a fuel that has the ability to get to zero um, by decarbonizing processes. Um, in terms of the examples you brought up of like sales um, and what I would classify those examples as it's almost like in the efficiency bucket. Um, and, you know, I know there are for those sales. I know people like imagine like the big um, triangle sales, but uh, if I would encourage people to actually go look up the picture and maybe we can include a picture in, in the link in the podcast. But they're actually um, uh, cylinders of what the maritime industry would consider and there has been trials of that, but it definitely hasn't been rolled rolled out or there's plans to roll that out. Um, I do think it's interesting because if you look at the aviation industry, they're very, they're very driven on the efficiency side of things. One might say too, too much, thinking that they can efficiency their way out of this, um, which they can't. I don't see as much focus on that in the maritime sector. But what's, of course, great about efficiency is you don't need to come in with an a sustainability argument for it. It's just a, a cost narrative um, with the positive R, um, return on investment. It seems to me, Chloe, that the holy grail that I'm looking for, the holy grail meaning that sort of thing that can unleash 
big change very fast. Mm-hmm. Is what you talked about earlier, that enthusiasm that you have for this, is how do we get everyone to feel that enthusiasm for jumping on board and making the change and really feeling like it, that this is something we want to do in a very positive way? How do you transmit that energy that you have to employees in a company? Mm. Well, I, I think uh, doing it in a company is almost like the best situation that you can have because I think one thing that gets people down uh, around talking about this is thinking, well, I'm just like one small person. Um, you know, even if you're to look at it from multiple different angles, like we live in a democracy, so you can vote, you can call your local rep, you can choose where you bank. There's not just one bank that you have to go to right um so you can be an investor you can look at it from a citizen perspective but even and then and then of course you can decarbonize your own footprint your own house but hang on hang on are you saying that a company like the board or the management Mm -hmm. should actually be telling people how to live you know and how to change their lifestyle (laughs) i don't think companies are certainly well it's interesting you'll find few companies where it's you know a little bit of cult culture uh where they you know you you have to that they might not be um i'm not sure i have an example in the climate space per se but you will find ones where it's like they tell you how to live um and if you don't want to live that way then you probably shouldn't be with us well they set an example you know um apple suddenly found everybody uh, behaving like Steve Jobs in the uh, in the early years of this century uh, because he set the example of um, you wear a T-shirt and jeans to work, you can take your dogs to work, you can, uh, uh, you can break off at any time and go off and do things. You're not actually telling people the way they've got to behave, but you set the example and suddenly they're doing it. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's not a direct communication. It's nudging them. It's communications. Um, actually, you know, like I think a really great example of companies playing a role in decarbonizing individual footprints is in the um, in the commuting area. So one of the cheapest ways you can get your hands on an EV today is through a novation lease because of the incentives put in place by the federal government. And of course, for that to happen, your company has to introduce the novation lease. Um, but it shouldn't just be a company having it there and not educating their staff about it. They should be actively promoting that, bringing in, um, you know, EVs for people to test drive. So I think that's that's a really great example. Or I think Google's done some great things in um, meat reduction. So again, they're not telling them they can't eat meat. It's just nudge tactics um, of uh, that you know scientifically show that it will and it has shown through their data like that it has reduced the amount of meat that's being consumed on site in their offices but how far do you go how far does the management need to go does it have to show the graphs of that we've now reached the global warming that the colin talked about earlier for one day should that be like in the news bulletin of the company to the employees i think it depends on the culture of the company so you know you have uh you have companies that are like actively green and part of the solution, solar companies. Um, then you have mutual companies like uh, hospitals, schools. I probably even put a toy company in there. And it's not saying they're not contributing to the problem, right? Um, but they're not actively going out of their way to contribute to the problem, like say a coal or an oil and gas company is, right? 
And so I'd probably say those green companies in that bucket that they, given their culture, would allow you to push the boundaries on that. Um, and then, of course, in that neutral bucket, like I think Patagonia is a great example where that would be a niche within that neutral bucket to say, though we're not contributing to the solution or the problem, that given our culture, um, that we could also push the boundaries on on that. Uh, just remind listeners, what was it with Patagonia? Oh, it's just that they have uh, the culture inside um, is very much climate focused, um, that they would be openly talking about reports of what we're talking about here today. But it's always a, a balancing act. It's like everything in the world. You have to balance it. We've been keeping a very firm eye on forest green rovers, which is in um, a British football club, which is recognised by the UN as the only carbon neutral sports outfit in the world. Uh, and they started when they were taken over um, by a new owner by the name of Dale, somebody. Um, and um, basically what he did is, um, first he started with uh, stopping the use of fertilisers or any carbon in that way and then moved it over to the fact that they don't sell meat pies um, and they don't sell any meats. And then he started, um, he, uh, the power all came from um, uh, from uh, either, and I don't think he's got wind, I think it's all solar, um, but he, he didn't do it by buying carbon offsets from anybody anywhere else. And it wound up that the entire team became not only vegan, but they were winning too. But then uh, they were successful, taken up to the next division, which was Division One, and uh, immediately the Predator other teams came in, um, headhunted the manager and the best players, mm. and they found themselves at the bottom of the new division, uh, and the manager they replaced with somebody who was a dedicated meat eater and tried to make everybody um, be tougher and harder rather than um, than what they were previously. And they, they went on a sort of a downward thing. So you've got to balance the fact that the good – it's a great example of how you have to balance the, the wonderful intentions with the realities – of what you're doing with your business. And also making sure that it's not just on one person, right, that you've spread that culture across multiple people because people move on, particularly in this day and age, from corporations. Mm. So it needs to be a choir, not a solo. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? You can't force it down people's throat. You need um, to sort of build that sort of atmosphere that people feel like, oh, I want to be part of this because it's something that gives me joy and fun. Yeah. Yeah. And probably coming back to your original question of like, how do you spread that message in a corporation? I was saying that the in a corporate environment, I think is the most amazing place to introduce it because if you were to reduce your impact as a consumer, you know, you're only really shifting like a really small percentage of um, what the problem is. And that can be very isolating and um, and not encouraging. But in a corporation, you know, if you are head of marketing or even if you have the ability to influence the head of marketing or if you're in operations and you're 
you're looking at shipping, right? Your the impact that you can have as an individual is massive, multiple times what you can have as a as an individual. And you can have the ability to shift the system, not just the your individual footprint. So there's a really great organization called Work for Climate. Uh, and they're based out of here in Australia. And their concept is that people shouldn't have to leave their day job to work in climate. That if you're a marketer, if you're in operations, if you're in legal, that your job can, as it stands today, can be a climate job. Uh, and I really, I really love that approach. Work for climate. Yes. There's just so many great examples of, um, of the of the work that they're doing and you know how i was talking about the people that make the change before the consultant gets there to formalize things that's exactly the community they're going after what's your takeaway message to the people who have been listening to you today chloe and and who are working either as employees or as management in a company what's the essence of it if you were to boil it down What can we do? What should we do? I I would say it's everybody's business. Um, whether you're going to be forced into it or whether you're going to lean in um, and embrace it and see the opportunities that exist there. This is a really scary space, but there's also solutions out there and it's everybody's business and it, and it's coming it's coming hard and it's coming fast. So lean in, get curious and act. This report doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't say you have to do this and then you have to do this. It doesn't provide us with such solutions or tell us that you need to do this. And that's up for us. We are the ones who need to take to take the decisions and we are the ones who need to be brave and ask the, the difficult questions to ourselves. Like, what do we value? So am I gonna open everything up? Am I gonna let fury fill my cup? Am I gonna be an anthem singing in the dark? Gonna light up like a burning heart? Am I gonna stand still as a rock? While everything shakes and tumbles off? Am I gonna remember the truth? Cause I wanna be nasty, wanna be brave Not let his fear make me afraid I don't wanna pretend I'm too small to jump the wall I'm just trying to remember her voice Telling me that every day is a choice For where there's good, there's bad But my child, you always can be the difference Be the difference
be the difference. I know the world.